Welcome to Insights and Indicators. I'm Jason Thomas, Carlisle's Head of Global Research and Investment Strategy. And in this podcast, I share observations and opinions on the economic landscape, as well as insights from research being conducted by our team here at Carlisle. Today, I'm very happy to also be joined by Brian Lindley, Carlisle's Global Head of Capital Markets, where we'll be discussing banks, financing, and some of the fallout uh, from the failure of SVB. This episode was recorded on March 22nd, 2023, and the discussion reflects composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports that are accurate as of that date. Before turning to Brian, I just wanted to share a quick assessment of of where we are, what we've seen from the portfolio and broader macroeconomy over the past month. First, uh, we have seen very strong U.S. consumption growth. Much of that is concentrated in what we call experiences spending, travel, tourism, live events, dining out. And in fact, our composite index of these categories from the portfolio suggests that spending here is up by about 25% relative to pre-pandemic peaks. So this is not just uh, an impressive rebound from the pandemic, but actually spending on things like hotel bookings and air travel and, and, and those sorts of things that is actually well above where it was for a comparable period in 2018 or 2019. So again, very strong growth. Now, growth here has proved to be a double-edged sword because employment in these sectors remains down uh, by about 1 million relative to pre-pandemic levels. So you actually have more business volumes, more gross receipts, but fewer workers. And as these businesses have tried to scale up employment to meet demand, They've run into difficulty, of course, uh, and and wages in these sectors are growing between seven and seven and a half percent. Given how large the cost base is, how large wages are as a share of the cost base, I should say, this of course contributes to higher services inflation, which the Fed has been very focused on, and and it seems to be a problem likely to persist at least for the next several months. We also continue to see efforts to push on price which is to say companies and management teams that still look for every opportunity to increase prices. Uh, This has become more difficult, certainly, as the price level has risen and as the prices have risen relative to incomes. But there's still lots of places throughout the portfolio where we do see final sales prices, the consumer price, that is actually growing in excess of what can be explained by cost. So so those are markups. Again, those are uh, aggressive efforts to continue to push on price. And, and now it's becoming more, I would say, discriminatory rather than the broad-based price increases that are much tougher to push through. It's specific categories of products, services, and then also customers. And, and in some cases, customers that have great difficulty switching away from the supplier of a component part or, or, or other needed input. Okay. So if this were recorded March 8th, we'd be talking about stronger global growth than expected. We'd be talking about stickier inflation. And then, of course, we'd be talking about the potential for higher rates. At that time, forward markets anticipated the Fed would have to raise rates by another 100 basis points, taking rates all the way up to 5.7%. But instead, in the interim, of course, we had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and the shock to the banking system that followed. So our interpretation of, of SVB, just very quickly, before turning to Brian, I, I would say first, this is a idiosyncratic event. That is to say, very specific to factors at SVB. However, 
it does have some important implications for the banking system, for the Fed policy going forward, and also for the tech sector and, and the boom-bust cycle it is enduring. And, and first, I would say with, with SOB in terms of its idiosyncrasy, we all know that really from the start of the pandemic, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital was channeled from investors all over the world into the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And a remarkably large share of that capital found its way into accounts opened at SVB. SVB's deposits went from about $65 billion at the outset of the pandemic in the United States uh, of March 2020 to $191 billion as of the end of 2021. So a threefold increase in about 22 months. Uh, in some ways, we could just stop the story right there. <laughs> at any time a, a financial institution grows at that rate, uh, it, it introduces blow-up risks. And, and of course, SVB was, was unable to avoid them. In addition, SVB had a very concentrated depositor base. Uh, it was a network of companies, in many cases, that were owned by uh, venture and growth capital funds. So as a result, it, it really, uh, the, the run took place at really breakneck speed because all that was required was a few of those uh, managers to suggest that their portfolio companies move their deposits elsewhere. And this is a degree of concentration and also a degree of concentration of uninsured deposits that we're not likely to see elsewhere. However, when you look at uh, what, what actually precipitated SVB falling below minimum capital thresholds, it was something that I think is, is more generalizable to the banking sector. And, and that's because SVB could not scale up lending, could not scale up floating rate loans to match its massive increase in deposits. That was just completely impractical. And also, uh, they, they have a large customer base that, of course, is startups that generally don't borrow very much or, or are viewed as, as too risky to make large loans to. So instead, SVB bought a lot of treasuries. They bought a lot of agency MBS. And their holdings uh, in their securities portfolio actually grew fourfold during that, that same period. And the problem is that when rates go up, as they have, uh, yields in many cases rose by 350 basis points, uh, the, the value of those longer dated fixed income securities falls. And, and the, the decline was between 15 and 20%. So when SVB was forced to sell those securities to meet depositor withdrawals, they had to crystallize very large losses. And those losses essentially wiped out their capital, or at least put them below minimum capital requirements, which forced an equity raise that ultimately failed. And, and when it did, the institution was seized by the FDIC. So when, when you look at the banking sector as a whole, there's lots of holdings of treasuries and MBS that, that have uh, declined in value. Some estimates suggest that the fair value losses at, at banks, if, if all of this were accounted for in mark to market at interest rates as of March 8th, would have resulted in, in a, about a $2 trillion decline in the fair value of, uh, of assets. And, and so this is, this is really consequential and, and something that I think the Fed saw as a, as a risk. And that's why they instituted their new liquidity facility, the bank term funding program, which allows banks to pledge treasury and agency MBS as collateral at par to get funding from the Fed. And this is significant because instead of selling 
those agency MBS at, at 82 or 83 per 100 of par, as SVB was forced to do. Banks in the future can pledge that collateral and get $100 of, of funding from the Fed and, and use that liquidity to pay off depositors without falling below those regulatory minimum thresholds. And, and of course, this program, coupled with uh, the expansion of the discount window, led to a $300 billion increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet in just the five business days since SVB started to run into trouble. So again, I, I think lots of idiosyncratic reasons why SVB failed and, and why this sort of run is not likely to recur elsewhere, but, but the basic asset liability mismatch very widespread. And then finally, tech, the, the boom and bust. And, and here I would just say that the failure of SVB very closely tied, again, to that Silicon Valley ecosystem. I, I don't want to generalize too much, but it is interesting, certainly, to consider the depositors of SVB. And, and the fact that a lot of the initial decline in deposits was, was actually quite natural, because these companies are loss-making startups that draw down their account balances to meet operating expenses, to, to, pay, to meet payroll, to pay invoices. And I think that this, this question of how attractive the basic proposition is to fund losses today in the hopes of some sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, this trade-off would seem to me to be very sensitized to interest rates, both because the uh, attractiveness of funding losses today is, is a function of the opportunity cost of, of not investing the money elsewhere. When rates are zero, funding losses isn't nearly as painful as when cash yields 4.5%, as is the case today. So I think, again, that there, there may be some reluctance there. And then secondly, as, as longer-term yields have risen, the present value of that terminal value, the, those profits out in the distant future, has just declined. That there is uh, the uh, the payoff in the future is is just worth worth less as yields have risen, and and so uh, I, I think we'll see over the next several months to to what extent SVB's failure is a sign of perhaps broader investment disenchantment with the sector. Because again, those those bank account balances, if not for another round of funding, would likely have continued to dwindle naturally, even had there been no run. So with that, uh, I would like to now turn it over to Brian. And my first question, Brian, and, and thank you uh, again for, for joining us today. My first question is the SVB fallout. Obviously, this is something that garnered a lot of attention in Chair Powell's press conference. The concerns that the failure of SVB and, and its repercussions across the banking sector may lead to a decline in credit availability. And, and what do you see of the impact of SVB on the deal finance markets or, or the markets in which we operate? Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on, Jason. I, like, I think the immediate impact is over the course of 2022, uh, we saw such a, a, a dramatic rise in volatility, particularly in the second half of the year relative to what people felt was happening in the, uh, in the rate environment and the pace of rate increases. Um, that we sort of saw deal activity slow to a trickle, as you as you said in your in your introduction, and maybe as we were coming out into 2023, um, you know, people were getting a little bit more comfortable about maybe as you know adjusting to new expectations, and maybe sellers' uh, views needed to needed to adjust a bit, and there'd be sort of an increase in 
in deal activity and everything was sort of settled down to a new normal. I think the, the immediate impact is very clearly that there's dramatically increased volatility. Again, everyone's very uncertain. I think that it's going to be quite a while uh, before before things settle down and, and, and deal activity will remain very muted. Having said that, three large deals were actually announced last week. So it feels like there's always a capability to be able uh, to get uh, deals done. But uh, yeah, fundamentally, uh, in in all of that volatility, certainly uh, the back end of last year, banks were very uh, wary about underwriting uh, any financings to support to support transactions. Uh, where that might have been coming back, I think that's definitely uh, dried up again a bit a bit now and take take a while to come back. Uh, you know, in these kind of environments, we've got that underlying volatility difficult to finance. It is very difficult for buyers and sellers uh, to match up on their expectations. So it, it, it's it, at the very least going to reduce deal activity or keep deal activity muted for the for the immediate future. I suspect that private credit played a large role in those three large deals you mentioned. Uh, and I'm just wondering, as we look forward and, and think about financing options for companies for transactions, what's the outlook for bank relative to private credit lending? And and to what extent do you think that the potential for uh, deposit outflows or, or greater risk aversion on the part of uh, uninsured depositors might contribute to a shift towards private credit? Yeah, look, um, look I'm not sure that is entirely the case. I think there are actually, uh, you know, bank underwrites behind some of those deals, and they would have been in place before um, probably fully understanding the uh, the SVB situation. But your your fundamental question is, you know, does private credit fill the gap when volatility and uncertainty comes in? And I think we sort of need to look at that across three big chunks. You know, we look to the term loan B market that gets underwritten by banks when we're, when we're buying companies. We look to the high yield market that also gets underwritten by banks uh, to, to then go out and distribute it later. Uh, and we also then look at privately placed uh, privately placed directly. But the banks themselves aren't buying the term loan B or the high yield. They're underwriting it to distribute. So, you know, deposits moving around uh, it doesn't directly impact the appetite uh, that they have to do those financings. Uh, I think the main issues around bank underwrite appetite are the volatility of 2022 showed banks the cost of being wrong. And so they're very cagey about stepping back in. And, you know, once you get to a point where banks need to sort of have an insurance policy to be able to uh, change their their issuance to sort of 90% to be able to discount the deal to sort of 90% of par from our perspective as someone using that financing, we sort of feel like that, that market's pretty closed. And pretty similarly, you know, uh, I mean, that can be the case in the high yield market as well. Uh, I think that if we're going to compare across term loan B high yield and private credit, um, that's where you start looking at the impact of um, the buyer base of each of these products. So the banks are cagey about wanting to underwrite into these markets. For the term loan B, that's one of our most favoured forms of, of financing, the impact there probably most directly is on the CLO market. It's very difficult to create CLOs at the moment. The cost of the AAA paper at the at the top of the stack 
um, has has gone wider, but it, it, there are lots of different types of uh, uh, AAA type paper that people can buy that's even wider than that. And actually, U.S. banks can be some of the uh, some important buyers of those AAAs. So it's quite difficult to see that there's going to be an awful lot of CLO creation at the moment and, and, and bank forecasts on how much of that's going to be in the market have been dialed back fairly significantly. That is quite a major buyer of this term loan B paper. So that in turn means that banks don't feel great about underwriting to it. You know, as I said, the high yield market can also open and close. Um, and you know, we tend to find that some of the non-call elements of that paper pretty difficult. So then you think about, well, what about the private market? And actually, the private credit market has grown so substantially. It's now, I think I had some JP Morgan numbers, it's now about 1.2 trillion if you include dry powder. And that's starting to get pretty similar to the size of the US term loan B market or pretty similar to the size of the US high yield market. But it's not a like-for-like situation. Private credit investors make much more concentrated bets. They have large tickets in in the deals that they look at. And that means that they're really hyper-selective. So yes, if we're in a situation where there's higher volatility um, and banks are struggling to underwrite, the really good companies, the really top-end sponsors are going to be able to get deals done by going to private credit. And that's a fantastic time for private credit to be operating. But it doesn't replace the fundamental capability of the market to sort of refinance the existing portfolio, as it were. We really need um, all of these markets to be functioning for it to work really well. It felt like we were starting to get back on track for that. And, um, you know, these recent uh, crises are, are certainly going to set us back um, at least a few months before we start getting back into, into some sort of an equilibrium. Thank you. Just one, one additional question about financing. I, I've noticed that many deals now uh, have a, a large mezzanine piece. Uh, maybe it's, it's pick, but, but generally it seems designed to provide some seniority relative to equity, of course, uh, but to ease the debt service burden on the, on the borrower. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you expect this to be a, an ongoing feature of the market. Uh, in the past, people have talked about mezzanine opening and closing and, and windows being relatively short. Do you think that there's, there's more staying power here? Or, or what, what do you see in, in, in that piece of the capital structure? Look, I, I think there are a lot of issues with, with uh, all kinds of terminology. But I think the easiest way to, to bifurcate this is between cash paid debt and non-cash paid debt. And I think the reason why that there's an increase in what we might call opportunistic credit or you might have called uh, mezzanine is the need for non-cash paid debt to replace cash paid debt. So if you think about the, you know, previously in a zero rate environment, you might have had a a cost of debt, you know, that was sort of, uh, you know, five or six percent. Those deals will be coming to maturity over this year, the next year you know, 2024, 25, and you need to refinance them. Well, unless you very materially deleveraged, which you might not have done given, you know, what's going on in the in the wider environment, um, you know, the cost of that previously 5 or 6% uh, cost of debt could easily be 10, 11, 12% cost of debt. So what you might have had originally as a sort of six to seven times EBITDA leverage capacity in your deal might be more like five or six times. So you can solve that by 
you're not really going to get the right coverage ratios. You probably have to reduce your debt. So you can solve that by injecting equity. That's not a particularly appealing proposition. Can you solve some of that by injecting non-cash pay debt? That really helps. And and the, and the same is true for new for for new buying new assets. Do do you completely adjust the purchase price, or is it actually a case where you can deal with having a, a slightly lower cash pay debt capacity by introducing a tranche of slightly higher yielding but non-cash pay debt? And then lastly, uh, when, when you speak about cash pay versus non-cash pay, of course, uh, the tech sector is, is an area where, because multiples got so high, many companies find themselves in a situation where, where they don't generate enough cash per unit of enterprise value uh, to to meet these these higher debt service costs and and I was wondering if if how do you feel about the tech sector the the credit stack on the tech sector and uh, and and what are your expectations for valuations uh, and and also potential default events uh, going forward I think in general a lot of um, investment cash and valuations ran up for high growth but high cash burning companies and you've got to expect that that's kind of kind of kind of go go away or at least pretty dramatically reduce and the opportunity for sort of quickly flipping those companies into the into the public markets becomes much more much more muted i think for some of the larger companies that did have uh, a fairly significant debt uh, burden uh, you know they may not have been completely cash burning companies they might have they might have had some cash uh, generation, but we're fundamentally, you know, fundamentally have high growth rates that are supporting big, uh, big valuations. It, it's the same point. When those existing deals come to maturity, they've got to get refinanced, and they might have to get refinanced with a lower debt capacity. They're certainly going to have to get refinanced with a higher interest cost burden. And if cash is a very precious resource. Because you're a high growth company, having to divert some of that cash uh, from supporting rapid growth to actually just supporting your your debt burden uh, is is presumably going to have a, quite a negative impact on valuation. So that's something we're we're certainly keeping a bit of an eye on, and as the you know the next few months and years progress. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for for joining us, and and thank you uh, to everyone. Uh, for for tuning into this episode of Insights and Indicators. Look forward to be back to you next month uh, with some additional analysis of what we're seeing in the portfolio and and also uh, broader trends in the global economy.